This is John Snyder for Theology Mix. Welcome to The Walk. I'm excited to have as our guest today, Dr. John Frame, retired chair of systematic theology and philosophy at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida. Dr. John Frame is retired J.D. Trimble Chair of Systematic Theology and Philosophy at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. Author of many books, including Salvation Belongs to the Lord, A History of Western Philosophy and Theology, and the four-volume Theology of Lordship series. The Doctrine of God won the Gold Medallion Award from the Evangelical Christian Publisher Association. Dr. Frame is on our show today to talk about his most recent book, We Are All Philosophers, published by Lexham Press. I became accustomed uh, through an evangelical church that I grew up in, uh, and uh, I... uh, Start, uh, I don't know why I started getting interested in philosophy, I guess because it was very close to uh, my studies in the Bible, and uh, they were uh, worried about the same kinds of questions, same subjects, and so uh, I found myself interested in philosophy when I went to college, and uh, I went uh, to uh, college uh, at Princeton and then uh, Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, and then I did graduate work at Yale, and then I came back to teach at West, Westminster uh, Theology, Philosophy, Apologetics, and uh, I uh, moved from uh, Westminster, Philadelphia to become one of the founding faculty at Westminster in Southern California, and uh, after that I moved to Florida to teach at the Reformed Theological Seminary in uh, Orlando. Okay. Well, you had a fun career, sounds like to me. Yeah, well, God moved me around. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, maybe move to the next one here. Tell me, what uh, what triggered the writing of We Are All Philosophers? Uh, did you have a specific target audience in mind for this? Well, in my seminary teaching, I've taught uh, theology and philosophy for many years, and the uh, in 2015, I published uh, with PNR a big fat book called uh, A History of Western Philosophy and Theology. And then I started to think, well, maybe, you know, that it was a book of hundreds and hundreds of pages. And uh, I thought maybe uh, I could uh, present something on a simpler level for people who didn't want to go through all of that. And and yet had some interests in philosophy and wanted to relate to uh, philosophical questions as a Christian. So I uh, decided to write a shorter book. In my old age, I've learned how to write shorter books. I usually, uh, in the past, I'd write these huge things, but uh, nowadays I'm more inclined to write less than 100 pages. And I know, me <laughs> so uh, this uh, We Are All Philosophers is a... Uh, intended to be kind of a popular distillation of some thoughts about uh, philosophical problems that I hope will be relatively accessible to uh, people who are just beginning uh, on the quest, uh, who are starting to learn a little bit and to take the kind of interest in philosophy that I had when I was 
18 and 19 and so on. Have you found a, um, a significant drop of interest in taking philosophy courses this day from uh, university cl- college students? Well, I don't know. I haven't taught in a university for some years. Uh, I believe that philosophy is uh, uh, important for Christians, and uh, there is a lot of interest in it on the seminary level, I think because students are interested in apologetics, which there's a lot of philosophy and apologetics and defending the Christian faith. And uh, so my students are always very interested in the subject, but uh, I think there's been a decline in uh, the interest in philosophy uh, among the general public these days. Yeah, I would I would guess that too, and so a lot of other areas as well. Um, I'm thinking of a person uh, named Nathaniel Bork. He was a philosophy teacher at a community college, and was, in his view, fired because he refused to dumb down his course. Um, uh, you feel that education today has been more or less dumbed down? Well, I I've never had the experience of anybody telling me to dumb down my course, except that. Uh, but frankly, I, I do feel that the students are not quite where they were 20 years ago or 30 years ago. There are things that the, uh, we were able to take for granted back then that we can't take for granted anymore. We can't assume that uh, students have had, a uh, uh, before they come to seminary, a, uh, a substantial knowledge of the history of thought, for example, and that was something we always assumed that they had back right. uh, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. It's certainly not the same day, is it? I mean, when you talk, no. when you talk to uh, high school graduates, even college graduates, you have to ask yourself the question, uh, what were they doing, you know, in class? Uh, <laughs> did they fall asleep? Yeah, but the, the, <laughs> the funny thing is that uh, when they get out of college, they're just loaded up with philosophy. It's It's tends to be bad philosophy, tends to be non-Christian philosophy, tends to be political socialism or something like that. But uh, nevertheless, they they claim that uh, they're really not interested in philosophy. They're just interested in practical stuff. So I'm sympathetic with the desire to make uh, uh, education more practical so that people can actually get jobs when they're done with it. But uh, I, I think that people are a little bit confused about uh, even about what they're learning in college anymore. Yeah, a lot of it does appear to be some forms of uh, indoctrination, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a related question here. Is, uh, uh, many colleges are eliminating philosophy or mixing it with interdisciplinary units. Um, and what would you say the compelling reasons to take philosophy courses as philosophy courses? and how are we hurting our young adults by eliminating it? Yeah, well, uh, I, I, for one thing, I don't think that it's possible to eliminate philosophy from the college curriculum, especially if you're aiming to uh, uh, put uh, students, put your alumni, uh, in, uh, make, make them uh, uh, participants in the, in the political order, for example. I mean, Marx was a philosopher, a very influential philosopher, probably the most influential philosopher today. In order to understand Marx, you have to understand the, his intellectual environment. You have to understand who influenced him and whom he influenced in turn. So 
you really can't avoid studying some philosophy. And uh, I don't know where these uh, students get their Marxism from if they haven't studied any philosophy at all. For another thing, I I think that uh, human beings are very naturally inclined to ask worldview questions, that is, questions about what the whole world is like. Is it matter? Is it electrons in motion? Uh, is it, uh, uh, you know, a, a lot of gods, uh, each one dealing with part of the natural order? Uh, is, or is the world an illusion? And uh, I think everybody asks questions like that, and uh, philosophy is the discipline that deals with those. Yeah. That's good. Okay. Um, I have a, I want to change gears a little bit here uh, and address to you some questions uh, from your book. Uh, these are common questions, and um, uh, our listeners won't have the chance, most likely, to have a, a Christian philosopher answer them. I mean, they, the kinds of things that everybody asks, and usually get an answer from maybe a pastor or a teacher or somebody. But here's a chance for them to hear it from uh, somebody who knows a lot about the issues. And so I've got a handful of these. I'd like to just uh, uh, toss them your way and see how you how you feel about them. First is a pretty much uh, standard question. How do we know God exists? Well, I try, first of all, to find out what the person, uh, where he's coming from, what the questions are motivating that question, because, uh, and, and secondly, I try to find out what he's capable of understanding. There are some people who are able to, understand complicated uh, mathematical and causal arguments for the existence of God, and there's a lot, there are a lot of those available. But uh, the thing is, in Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 18, it says that God is clearly revealed, uh, being understood by the things that are made, and that means that he's clearly understood by everybody, that there's some level at which everybody knows God. It's not difficult to find God, so you really don't need an elaborate argument for that. You really don't need an education uh, for that. You just need to consider some very simple things. And so when I'm talking about the existence of God, I, I try to focus on things that are obvious, like right and wrong, for example. I mean, we're always accusing other people of being wrong, and we're always justifying our own actions as being right. And uh, the question is, where do we get this idea of right and wrong? And uh, you can't see right and wrong the way you can see the sky or see a tree or see the sun. Uh, you, 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 You believe in right and wrong. You believe some things are right and others are wrong, but you can't prove that the way you can prove uh, scientific theories, uh, I think it's a matter of trust. I think we grow up as children uh, trusting our parents, believing our our caregivers when they say that this is right and that's wrong, and sometime later in life we we learn to correct our uh, parents by uh, uh, things we learn from our teachers and things we learn from textbooks and things we learn from philosophers, but uh, at every point, the, the question, why do you trust what your teacher says? Why do you trust what your coach says? Well, why do you trust what the 
somebody else says. So eventually you've got to ask the question, there has to be somebody that I trust more than anybody else, uh, especially on matters of right and wrong. And uh, I think that that leads you to say, well, there has to be a final authority. There has to be somebody whom I trust and love uh, more than anybody else. And we call the name of that person uh, God. And everything else is wrapped up in that. You know, if you talk about human knowledge, well, knowledge is uh, acknowledging what is right to acknowledge and and denying what is uh, right to deny. And uh, that takes trust, too. So I think uh, eventually we we have to come down to uh, the idea that uh, this world is governed by a person uh, who... uh, uh, is is perfectly trustworthy and who has the final authority over what is right and what is wrong, what is true, and what is false. I go into that argument a little bit in my book and some other books that I've written, but I think that's that's usually the way I go about it uh, when I'm trying to talk about that with somebody. I think that'll draw people into uh, reading your book, actually. I wanted to know more, more about that. So. Um second one is uh, people ask, do I have a free will? Well, we all have free will in, a, in an obvious kind of way. I, I'm sitting here in my chair, and uh, uh, there I just stood up. So uh, uh, I <laughs> chose to stand up, and uh, that's my free will. I, I do what I want to do. And uh, I could have chosen to stay seating, uh, seated, and uh, that's my choice too. So... I have a free will. I choose to do this, and I do it. And I choose to do that, and I do that. But there's some people who think that you don't really have a free will if there is any kind of cause behind it. Uh, people sometimes say, "Well, uh, uh, if you can describe uh, uh, medically, for example, why you stood up, uh, mechanisms in your body." If you had to stand up because something was taking place in your body, well, uh, you wouldn't be free. So you have to be absolutely independent of everything else that's going on. Now, there there are arguments uh, for and against that kind of notion, but that's not what we usually mean by free will. Free will simply means I can do what I choose to do. And... uh, but, of course, there are things that uh, uh, work in the causal order, and I think that God's uh, decrees and God's providence and God's involvement in the world uh, influences our choices and decisions, and uh, uh, certainly that is uh, uh, not contrary to uh, the concept of free will. Good answer. I can tell you're used to answering these questions. I got a third one for you here. <laughs> well, that's one of my chapters. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> and uh, you also, you've been lecturing for years. Uh, by the way, how, how many years were you teaching formally? I started teaching in 1968, and I retired in uh, 2017. So uh, you can count that up. Uh, 49 years, if I persevered a little longer, it would have been 50. <laughs> it sounds like you did enough to me. Um, now you're, I'll, I'll talk to you later when we're finished these questions. Now I'm 80. Personal issue. Uh, third one is, how can a good God, and you've heard this before, I'm sure, many times, 
um, usually a hostile question. How can a good God bring evil into this world? Well, I always go back to the Bible when people ask that question, and the Bible has a lot to say about it. You know, the book of Job is all about uh, how bad things happen to a good man, and uh, uh, the Apostle Paul in writing Romans 8 and Romans 9, he has a lot to say about that, too. I think the Bible gives us three answers, and this ties in with some of the threes that I <laughs> emphasize in various places, but the, 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 the one answer is what I call normative. That is, the Lord says, I can do whatever I want with the world I've made. Okay, and uh, I, I call that the, the shut-up response to the uh, problem of evil. That's uh, in Romans 9. God says, uh, I have the right to do what I wish with my own, and nobody has a right to reply to me. So we just, uh, if we believe in God at all, we've got to believe that he is ultimate, that he's absolute, and that he has the final say on what's good and what's evil and why there's good and why there's evil and so on and so forth. Okay, that's the normative answer. The second answer might be called teleological or situational. Uh, that's Romans 8.28, where God says that uh, uh, all things, in all things, God works for good. That is, all the evils in this world, terrible as they are, and I don't want to downplay that at all. And God doesn't say that uh, because these are part of his plan that they're not really evil. They are really evil. So we have to admit that. We have to be honest about it. But nevertheless, all these terrible things are working together for good, for a good res result. And... Uh, this is a result that uh, will be a blessing uh, for the kingdom of God, and it will be a blessing for believers in Christ. And uh, so the overall result will be good rather than bad. The third answer, which I call existential, is uh, that uh, the Bible tells us that one day God will change our hearts so that... Uh, we will not have any inclination to charge God with evil. In Revelation 15, you have this vast multitude of people standing around God's throne saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just, just and true are your ways, King of the Ages. Uh, your mighty acts have been revealed. So in the final day, when we're able to look back over all history, and when we stand before God and our mouths are open and we're able to say whatever we're inclined to say uh, to God, uh, in that day we will have no inclination to charge God with evil. In that day we will, uh, we will recognize that God is deserving of all praise because he is utterly and completely good and holy. That's a good answer. So I think those three an answers are 
I, I don't think anybody can think up anything better than those. No, and I think, so I just keep reiterating them. I think them. you've covered the waterfront pretty well on those. And also, your answer spills over into my next question, which just happens to be Romans 8.28. How does God work all things for good, which you've already answered? Uh, so thanks for uh, okay. thanks for building that into it. I've got one more here. And uh, it's uh, probably a student's question out of fear. And uh, let's say he comes to you and he's just finished your lecture. And he's not sure how he stands with God. And he says to you, how can I be saved? What do you say to him? Well, I'd say uh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Just as uh, uh, the, the disciples uh, said to the jailer at Philippi when uh, he asked, uh, what must I do to be saved? And uh, uh, there is no other name given among heaven. Uh, so I, I just present the gospel, the uh, uh, traditional evangelical gospel that we're all in need of uh, God's forgiveness because of our sins. We need to recognize that. We need to recognize that a perfect being uh, has the right to uh, punish us very severely for sin, uh, but uh, he has opened the way for full and complete forgiveness on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross uh, to pay the penalty for sin, to uh, bring reconciliation between us and God, and uh, he offers that full forgiveness and eternity of wonderful fellowship with God uh, forever and ever, and uh, he, he calls us uh, uh, to repent of our sins, to turn away from them, and uh, to embrace Jesus as the one who uh, died for our sins and the one who is the Lord of heaven and earth whom we should obey without question. Well, I have a student, uh, thank you for that. Uh, I have a student who here just recently said, look, uh, I want to be saved, I want to believe, but I can't, or else I don't know how. Uh, what do I do to get to the point where I, I can believe with all my heart? Well, in one sense, we can't believe uh, if we, uh, because if we prefer to uh, keep our sins, if we prefer to keep uh, do it, living our lives in our own way rather than God's, and of course we can't uh, uh, receive Christ because the two are uh, incompatible with one another. You can't uh, go two directions at once. You have to make a choice, and here's where your free will comes in. Do you want to hold on to your sins and live uh, according to your own uh, reason and your own values, or do you want to turn away from those and, and embrace Jesus Christ? And if you want to turn away from sin and embrace Jesus Christ, you've already made the most significant choice. I mean, there's already been a change in your mind. And, uh, you know, you may want to verbalize it in some way. Uh, I think the best way to verbalize it is to, to start living differently. But uh, uh, you, you, once you recognize your need, uh, you've done everything that you need to do, really. Okay. Good questions. Good answers. Uh, I want to thank you for those. That, that's, the, uh, that's the end of my list, actually. But I want to ask you if there's anything else you'd like to add uh, about your book or any other topic you want to uh, conclude with. The book is available from all the usual places like Amazon and 
so on. And uh, I, I've written, uh, I, I hope that it will uh, lead some people to uh, some of my other books. There are two very short ones that I wrote last year. One of them is uh, Christianity Considered, which is sort of an extended argument uh, between a believer and a non-believer. Uh, another one is called uh, Nature's Case for God, which uh, asks the question, if you look out at the natural world, uh, uh, what is there about that natural world that should lead you to trust in God? I'd like to thank Dr. John Frame for talking with us today. Remember to buy his book, We Are All Philosophers, available where quality books are sold. Thanks also to our listeners for joining us in today's interview. Please watch for other upcoming shows with people you'd love to know. Again, this is your host, John Snyder. Be with you again soon.